The sun had set. The great shadows came striding over the forest in the weird twilight of a late summer day. I saw the path ahead glide on among the mighty trees and disappear, and I shuddered and glanced fearfully over my shoulder. Miles behind lay the nearest village, miles ahead the next. I looked to left and to right as I strode on, and anon I looked behind me, and anon I stopped short, grasping my rapier as a breaking twig betokened the going of some small beast, or was it a beast? But the path led on, and I followed, because forsooth I had naught else to do. As I went, I bethought me, my own thoughts will rout me, if I be not aware. What is there in this forest except perhaps the creatures that roam it, deer and the like? Tush, the foolish legend of those villagers. And so I went, and the twilight faded into dusk. Stars began to blink, and the leaves of the trees murmured in the faint breeze. And then I stopped short, my sword leaping to my hand, for just ahead, around a curve of the path, someone was singing. The words I could not distinguish, but the accent was strange, almost barbaric. I stepped behind a great tree, and the cold sweat beat through my forehead. Then the singer came in sight, a tall, thin man, vague in the twilight. I shrugged my shoulders, a man I did not fear. I sprang out, my point raised. Stand! He showed no surprise. I prithee handle thy blade with care, friend, he said. Somewhat ashamed, I lowered my sword. I am new to this forest, I quoth apologetically. I heard talk of bandits. I crave pardon. Where, where lies the road to Villafir? Corbleu, you've missed it, he answered. You should have branched off to the right some distance back. I'm going there myself. If you may abide my company, I will direct you. I hesitated. Yet why should I hesitate? Why, certainly. My name is de Montour of Normandy, and I am Carolus Le Loup. No, I started back. He looked at me in astonishment. Pardon, said I. The name is strange. Does not loop mean wolf? My family were always great hunters, he answered. He did not offer his hand. You will pardon my staring, said I, as we walked down the path, but I can hardly see your face in the dusk. I sensed that he was laughing, though he made no sound. It is little to look upon, he answered. I stepped closer, then leaped away, my hair bristling. A mask, I exclaimed. Why do you wear a mask, monsieur? It is a vow, he exclaimed. I'm fleeing a pack of hounds. I vowed that if I escaped, I would wear a mask for a certain time. Hounds, monsieur? Wolves, he answered quickly. I said wolves. We walked in silence for a while, and then my companion said, I'm surprised that you walk these woods by night. Few people come these ways, even in the day. I am in haste to reach the border, I answered. A treaty has been signed with the French, and the Duke of Burgundy should know of it. The people at the village sought to dissuade me. They spoke of a wolf that was purported to roam these woods. Here the path branches to Villaferre, said he, and I saw a narrow, crooked path that I had not seen when I passed it before. It led in amidst the darkness of the trees. I shuddered. You wish to return to the village? No, I exclaimed. No, no. Lead on. So narrow was the path that we walked, single file, he leading. I looked well at him. He was taller, much taller than I, and thin wiry he was dressed in a costume that smacked of spain a long rapier swung at his hip he walked with long easy strides noiselessly then he began to talk of travel and adventure 
He spoke of many lands and seas he had seen and many strange things. So we talked and went farther and farther into the forest. I presumed that he was French, yet he had a very strange accent that was neither French nor Spanish nor English, not like any language I had ever heard. Some words he slurred strangely, and some he could not pronounce at all. This path is often used, is it? I asked. Not by many, he answered and laughed silently. I shuddered. It was very dark, and the leaves whispered together among the branches. A fiend haunts this forest, I said. So the peasants say, he answered. But I have roamed it oft and have never seen his face. Then he began to speak of strange creatures of darkness, and the moon rose, and shadows glided among the trees. He looked up at the moon. Haste, said he. We must reach our destination before the moon reaches her zenith. We hurried along the trail. They say, said I, that a werewolf haunts these woodlands. It might be, said he, and we argued much upon the subject. The old women say, said he, that if a werewolf is slain while a wolf, then he is slain. But if he is slain as a man, then his half-soul will haunt his slayer forever. But haste thee, the moon nears her zenith. We came into a small moonlit glade, and the stranger stopped. Let us pause a while, said he. Nay, let us be gone, I urged. I like not this place. He laughed without sound. Why, said he, this is a fair glade, as good as a banquet hall it is, and many times have I feasted here. Ha ha ha, look ye, I will show you a dance. And he began bounding here and there, anon flinging back his head and laughing silently. Thought I, this man is mad. As he danced his weird dance, I looked about me. The trail went not on, but stopped in the glade. Come, said I, we must on. Do you not smell the rank, hairy scent that hovers about the glade? Wolves' den here. Perhaps they are about us, and are gliding upon us even now. He dropped upon all fours, found it higher than my head, and came toward me with a strange, slinking motion. That dance is called the Dance of the Wolf, said he, and my hair bristled. Keep off. I stepped back, and with a screeching that set the echoes shuddering, he leaped for me and through a sword hung at his belt he did not draw it. My rapier was half out when he grasped my arm, and flung me headlong. I dragged him with me, and we struck the ground together. Wrenching a hand free, I jerked off the mask. A shriek of horror broke my lips. Beast's eyes glittered beneath that mask. White fangs flashed in the moonlight. The face was that of a wolf. In an instant, those fangs were at my throat. Taloned hands tore the sword from my grasp. I beat at that horrible face with my clenched fist, but his jaws were fashioned on my shoulder and his talons tore at my throat. Then I was on my back, the world fading. Blindly I struck out. My hand dropped and closed automatically about the hilt of my dagger, which I had been unable to get at. I drew and stabbed, a terrible half-bestial bellowing screech. Then I reeled to my feet, free. At my feet lay the wolf. I stopped, raised the dagger, then paused, looked up. The moon hovered close to her zenith. If I slew the thing as a man, its frightful spirit would haunt me forever. I sat down waiting. The thing watched me with flaming wolf eyes. The long, wiry limbs seemed to shrink, to crook. Hair seemed to grow upon them. Fearing madness, I snatched up the thing's own sword and hacked it to pieces. Then I flung the sword away and fled.
I repeat to you, gentlemen, that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever, if you will. Confine or execute me if you must. Have a victim to procreate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything that I can remember, I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed. And if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind. That cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again I say, I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion. If there be anywhere so blessed a thing, it is true that I have for five years been his close friend and a partial sharer of his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together as he says, on the Gainesville Pike, walking toward the big cypress swamp at half-past eleven on that awful night, that we bore electric lanterns, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instrument, I will even affirm. For these things all played a part in the single hideous scene which remains burned in my shaken recollection, but of what followed, and of the reason I was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp next morning, I must insist that I know nothing save what I have told you over and over again. You say to me that there is nothing in the swamp or near it which could form the setting of that frightful episode. I reply that I know nothing beyond what I saw, vision or nightmare it may have been, vision or nightmare, I fervently hope it was, yet it is all that my mind retains of what took place in those shocking hours after we left the sight of men, and why Harley Warren did not return. He or his shade or some nameless thing I cannot describe, alone can tell. As I have said before, the weird studies of Harley Warren were well known to me, and to some extent shared by me, of his vast collection of strange, rare books on forbidden subjects. I have read all that are written in the languages of which I am master, but there are few as compared with those in languages I cannot understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic, and the fiend-inspired book, which brought on the end, the book which he carried in his pocket, out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book, as to the nature of our studies. Must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension? It seems to me rather merciful that I do not, before they were terrible studies, which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren almost dominated me, and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expression on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of his theory why certain corpses never decay, but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now, for I suspect these known horrors are beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more I say that I have no clear idea of our object on that night. Certainly it had much to do with something in the book which Warren carried with him, that ancient book in undecipherable character which had come to him from India a month before. But I swear I do not know what it was that we expected to find. Your witness says he saw us at half-past eleven on the Gainesville Pike, headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is of one scene only, and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heaven. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient that I trembled at the manifold signs of immemorial years. It was in deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, 
and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench, which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creatures to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim, wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapor that seemed to emanate from the unheard of catacomb, and by its feeble, wavering beam, I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausolean facades, all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchre and of throwing down some burdens which we seemed to have been carrying i now observed that i had with me an electric lantern and two spades whilst my companion was supplied with a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit no word was uttered for the spot and the task seemed known to us and without delay we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass weeds and drifted earth from the flat archaic mortuary after uncovering the entire surface which consisted of three immense granite slabs we stepped back some distance to survey the charnel scene and warren appeared to make some mental calculations and he returned to the sepulchre and using his spade as a lever sought to pry up the slab lying nearest the stony ruin which may have been a monument in its day he did not succeed and motioned me to come to his assistance finally our combined strength loosened the stone which we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture from which rushed an effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. And now, for the first time, my memory records verbal discourse, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface, he said but it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read, and from what I've told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I don't wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me. But the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, you can't imagine what the thing is really like, but I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I've enough wire here to reach the center of the earth and back. I can still hear, in my memory, those coolly spoken words and I can still remember my, my remonstrance. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into these sepulchral depths. Yet he proved inflexibly obdurate. At one time, he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent, a threat which proved effective, since he alone held the key to the thing. All of this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. 
After he had secured my reluctant acquiescence in his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instrument. At his nod, I took one of the latter and seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone, close by the newly uncovered aperture. Then he shook my hand, shouldered the coil of wire, and disappeared within the indescribable ossuary. For a moment, I kept sight of the glow of his lantern, and I heard the rustle of the wire as he laid it down after but the glow soon disappeared abruptly, as if a turn in the stone staircase had, had been encountered, and the sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone, yet bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beams of that waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and delusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentient, amorphous shadow seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow, and to flit as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside, shadows which could not have been cast by the pallid, peering crescent moon. I constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern, and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone, but for more than a quarter of an hour heard nothing. Then a faint clicking came from the instrument, and I called down to my friend, in a tense voice, apprehensive as I was, I was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from the uncanny vaults in accents more alarmed and quivering than any I had heard before from Harley Warren. He who had so calmly left me a little while previously now called from below in a shaky whisper, more pretentious than the loudest shriek. God, if you could see what I am seeing, I could not answer speechless. I could only wait. Then came the frenzied tone again. Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. This time my voice did not fail me, and I poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions. Terrified, I continued to speak to Warren. What is it? What is it? Once more came the voice of my friend, still hoarse with fear, and now apparently tinged with despair. I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this. Stillness again, save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry. Then the voice of Warren in a pitch of wilder consternation. Carter, for the love of God, put back the slab and get out of this if you can. Quick, leave everything else and make for the outside. It's your only chance. Do as I say, and don't ask me to explain. I heard. It was able only to repeat my frantic questions. Around me were the tombs and the darkness and the shadows. Below me some peril, beyond the radius of the human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I, and through my fear I felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances. More clicking, and after a pause a piteous cry from Warren. Beat it for God's sake. Put back the slab and beat it, Carter. Something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculty. I formed and shouted a resolution. Warren, brace up. I'm coming down. But at this offer, the tone of my auditor changed to a scream of utter despair. Don't. You can't understand. It's too late. And my own fault. Put back the slab and run. There's nothing else you or anyone can do. The tone changed again this time acquiring a softer quality as of hopeless resignation, yet it remained tense through anxiety for me, quick before it's too late. I tried not to heed him, tried to break through the paralysis which held me, 
and to fulfill my vow to rush down to his aid. But his next whisper found me still held inert in the chains of stark horror. Carter, hurry. It's no use. You must go. Better one than two. The slab. A pause more clicking than the fervent voice of Warren. Nearly over now. Don't make it harder. Cover up those damn steps and run for your life. You're losing time. So long, Carter. Won't see you again. Here, Warren's whisper swelled into a cry. A cry that gradually rose to a shriek, fraught with all the horror of the ages. Curse these hellish things. Legions, my God. Beat it. Beat it. Beat it. After that was silence. I know not how many interminable aeons I sat stupefied, whispering, muttering, calling, screaming into that telephone, over and over again through those aeons. I whispered and muttered, called and shouted and screamed, Warren, Warren, answer me. Are you there? And then there came to me the crowning horror of all, the unbelievable, unthinkable, almost unmentionable thing. I have said that aeons seemed to elapse after Warren shrieked forth his last despairing warning, and that only my own cries now broke the hideous silence. But after a while there was further clicking in the receiver, and I strained my ears to listen. Again I called down, Warren, are you there? And in answer heard the thing which has brought this cloud over my mind. I do not try, gentlemen, to account for that thing, that voice, nor can I venture to describe it in detail, since the first words took away my consciousness and created a mental blank which reaches to the time of my awakening in the hospital. Shall I say that the voice was deep, hollow, gelatinous, remote, unearthly, inhuman, disembodied? What shall I say? It was the end of my experience, and is the end of my story. I heard it and knew no more. Heard as I sat petrified in the unknown cemetery, in the hollow amidst the crumbling stones, in the falling tombs, the rank vegetation, and the miasmal vapors. Heard it well up from the innermost depths, of the damnable open sepulchral, as I watched amorphous, necrophagous shadows dance beneath an accursed waning moon. And this is what I said, you fool, Warren is dead. All were crowding around M. Bermutier, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. Ember Mutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity, and by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, It's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known. The judge turned to her. True, madame. It is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once, I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. In fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, Oh, tell us about it. M. Bermutier smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. Do not think, however, that I, 
for one minute ascribed anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes, but if instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better, at any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding, preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at that time a judge at Ahasio, a little white city on the edge of a bay, which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find they're the most beautiful causes for revenge, of which one could dream. Enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for a time but never extinguished. Abominable stratagems, murders, becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice, which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered. My head was full of these stories. One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. He had brought with him a French servant, who he had engaged on the way at Marcella's. Soon this peculiar person, living alone, only going out to hunt and fish, aroused a widespread interest. He never spoke to anyone, never went to the town, and every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle. Legends were built up around him. It was said that he was some high personage fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons. Then it was affirmed that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime. Some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, I decided to try to see this stranger myself, and I began to hunt reg regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time, I watched without finding an opportunity. At last, it came to me in the shape of a partridge, which I shot and killed right in front of the Englishman. My dog fetched it for me, but taking the bird, I went at once to Sir John Rowell, and begging his pardon, asked him to accept it. He was a big man with red hair and beard, very tall, very broad, kind of calm and polite Hercules. He had nothing of the so-called British stiffness, and in a broad English accent he thanked me warmly for my attention. At the end of a month we had five or six conversations. One night at last, as I was passing before his door, I saw him in the garden, seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. I bowed and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer. I needed no urging. He received me with the most Punticulous English courtesy, sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then with great caution and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America. He added laughing, I had many adventures. Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious detail on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, are all these animals dangerous? He smiled, oh no, man is the worst, and he laughed a good broad laugh, the wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also frequently been man-hunting. Then he began to talk about weapons, and he invited me to come in and see different makes of guns. His parlor was draped in black, black silk embroidered in gold big yellow flowers as, as brilliant as fire were worked on the dark material. He said, 
It is a Japanese material, but in the middle of the widest panel a strange thing attracted my attention. A black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand. A human hand. Not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails. The muscles exposed and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe, near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain riveted and soldered to this unclean member, fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, what is that? The Englishman answered quietly, this is my best enemy. It comes from America too. The bones were severed by a sword and the skin cut off with a sharp stone and dried in the sun for a week. I touched these human remains, which must have belonged to a giant. The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. His hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said this, this man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, Yes, but I was stronger than he. I put on the chain to hold him. I thought that he was joking, I said. The chain is useless now. The hand won't run away. Sir John Rowell answered seriously. It always wants to go away. The chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, Is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm and friendly. I turned to other subject and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room, as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls, then I did not go any more. People had become used to his presence. Everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarmes. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first, I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn. The sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth, and his neck pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument was covered with blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time, and then made his strange announcement. It looks as though he had been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back, and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth, I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut or rather sawed off by the teeth down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month, his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn. Often in a fit of passion, which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, which had disappeared. No one knows how. At the very hour of the crime, he would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night, he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to open the window that the servant had found Sir John murdered. 
He suspected no one. I communicated that I knew of the dead man to the judges and the public officials throughout the whole island. A minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there. We had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The woman deeply stirred. One of them exclaimed, but that is neither a climax nor explanation. We will be un unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred. The judge smiled severely. Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead, but he came to get it with his remaining one. But I don't know how. It was a kind of vendetta. One of the women murdered. No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation... I'm writing this under appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug, which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think for my slavery to morphine that I am weakling or degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, but never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize. Whilst we of her crew were treated with all fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners, so liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess, vaguely by the sun and stars, that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship, or to be cast on the shores of some uninhabitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair my solitude upon hearing vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know. My slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I was awakened, it was to discover myself, half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations, as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. But one might well imagine that my first sensation would be a wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation. Of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things, which I saw protruded from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight, save a vast reach of black slime, yet the very completeness of the stillness and homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized only one theory could explain my position. 
Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under the unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me. I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean. Strain my ears as I might, nor were there any seafowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling. Purposes in a short time that night, I slept but little. The next day, I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight and evil and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily east-westward, guided by a far hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day was still traveled toward the hummock. Though the object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it, by the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance. Intervening valley, setting it out sharp from leaf, the general surface. Too wary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night. But ere the warning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side in an immeasurable pit of or canyon, whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to loom. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through the terror ran reminiscent of paradise lost, and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easily footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler, gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of the distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with a sensation I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss, which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions 
and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I can now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphs unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fish, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things, which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I'd observed on an ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carvings, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water, on account of their enormous size, were an array of boss-relief whose subject could have excited the envy of a door. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage to some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. But their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a poe or a there was damnably human in the general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other featureless, pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, there seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fish or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished, eras before the ancestors of the pit downer Neanderthal man was born awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist. I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it, only a slight churning to, its, to mark its rise to the surface. The thing slid into view above the dark waters, vast, olifimous, and loathsome, and darted with a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then, of my frantic ascent of the sloping cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remembered little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I had indistinct recollections of a great storm, some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of those shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of an American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium, I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing. Nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated entomologist who amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistines' legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug was given only transient surcease, and was drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account of the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself, if it could not have all been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man of war, this I ask myself, whatever does there come before me, a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless thing that may at the very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likeness on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons 
the remnants of puny war-exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall shrink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door. There's some immense slippery body lumbering against it. I shall not find God that hand. The window. The window. I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice. A shop window of alluring little objects. Magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning, Gip hauled me by my finger right up to the window and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about, just out of patent incubators. There it was, sure enough. I had fancy it was down near the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way and a little inaccessible. It had been with something of the mirage in its position, but here it was now, quite indisputably and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. If I was rich, said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, I'd buy myself that, and that, which was the crying baby, very human in that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, by one in astonishing your friends. Anything, said Gip, will disappear under one of those combs. I have read about it in a book, and there, Dada, in the vanishing halfpenny, only they've put it this way up, so as we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way. Only you know, quite unconsciously, he lugged my finger doorward and made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jesse, he said, thoughtful as ever of others. It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles, I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gib made no answer, but his grip tightened. But his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop, and all the prancing pre precedence Gib would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation on me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger in the papier-mâché on the glass case that covered the low counter. A grave kind-eyed tiger had that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls at various scenes and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a drought. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I supposed, came in. At any rate, there he was, behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man, with, with one ear larger than the other, and a chin like a toe cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure, he said, spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case. And so with the start we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Legitimate, he asked, mechanical, domestic. Anything amusing, said I. Hmm, said the shopman. 
and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then quite distinctly he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers, but I had not expected it. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it, said the shopman. Gibbs stretched out his disengaged hand to take the object and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will it be, I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them. He picked out. He picked one out of his elbow as he spoke. Free. He produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded his glass ball sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman who smiled. You may have those too, said the shopman, and if you don't mind, one from the, my mouth. Gip counseled me mutely for a moment, and then in profound silence put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course it's cheaper. In a way, said the shopman, though we pay in the end, but not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop not for genuine magic goods. Sir, I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with a finger on the word, and added there is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know you are the right sort of... You, you know you are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline, we keep it rather secret even at home. But Gip received in an unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be heard faintly. Nyar, I want to go in there, Dada. I want to go in there. Nyar. And then the accents of a downtro downtrodden parent, urging consolation and propitations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always for that sort of child, always for that sort of child, and he spoke. We had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white-faced pallid from sweet eating and over-sapid food, and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist, pawing at the enchanted pain. To no good, sir, said the shopman as I moved, with my natural helpfulness, doorward, and, pre and presently the spoilt, spoilt child was carried off howling. How do you manage that, I said breathing a little more freely. Magic, said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand, and behold, sparks of colored fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself toward Gip, before you came in that you would like to buy, you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes. Gip, after a gallant effort, said yes. It's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter, he realized he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of that empty hat with the springs. And behold, his mouth was a string box from which he drew an unending thread, which when he had tied his parcel, he bit off. And it seemed to me, 
swallowed the ball of string, and then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist's dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat breast and packed it. Also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel the gift as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent, and he was the playground of unex... He was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat. Something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter and went. I fancy into a cardboard box behind the papier-mâché tiger. Tut-tut, said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress. Careless bird, and, as I live, nested. He shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, and about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, taking all the time of the way, taking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside, as well as out, politely of course, but with all certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir, not you of course in particular. Nearly every customer. Astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, and still his voice went on and on. We, none of us know what the fair semblance of a human may none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors or whited sepulchres? His voice stopped exactly like when you hit a neighbor's gramophone with a well-aimed brick. The same instant silence, and the rustle of the paper stopped, and everything was still. Have you done with my hat, I said after an interval. There was no answer. I stared at Gip, and Gip stared at me, and there were our distortions in the magic mirrors, looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. Will you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note. I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip around the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my head on the floor and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation and looking as stupid, as stupid and crumbled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, lollop to lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Giff, said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Pussy, he said with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do Gip a magic, and his eye had followed it as it squeezed through a door. I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling. He was smiling still, but his eyes met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You'd like to see our, so our showroom, sir, he said, with an innocent suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic was just, was just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his, his flexible hands together. And that is the best. 
Nothing in this place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir? I felt him... <clears throat> I felt him pulling at something that clung to my coat sleeve, and then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail. The little creature bit and fought and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind the counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted Indiana... India rubber, but for the moment, and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty biting bit of petty biting bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, indicating Gip and the red demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever. Astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares. And then to Gip. Do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied here. He turned to this astonishing tradesman with a mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword, he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the finger. It renders the bearer invincible in battle against anyone under eighteen. Half a crown to seven and six pence according to size. These Penelo... Panoplies on the cards are for juvenile knights, errant and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, daddy, gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had Gip now. It got him away from my finger, and he had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock. Nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw, with a, calm, with a qualm of distrust, something very like jealousy that Gip had hold of this person's finger as usually he had hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff, but really good fake stuff, still. I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on the pr on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt when the time came to go, we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long, rambling place that show that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing indeed were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopmen showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very valuable boxes of soldiers that all, that all came alive directly. He took off the lid and said, I myself have a very quick ear. It was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, he has his mother's ears, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment, Gip had made them all alive again. You take that box, said the, asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case I would need a trust magnet. Dear heart, no, said the shopman, swept the little men back again, shut the lid, waved the box in air, and there it was, in brown paper, tied up, and, and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is a genuine magic shop, he said. The real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that, he fell to, showing Gip tricks and odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside and out. And there was dear there was the dear little chap, nodding with the busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did not as I did not attend as well as I might, 
Hey presto, said the magic shop man. And then there, there would come the clear small, hey presto of the boy. But it was distracted by other things. But I was distracted by other things. I was being borne in upon me, just how tremendously rum this place was. It was, so to speak, inundated with the sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures even, about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them, straight they went askew, and moved about, and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back. And the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off, and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch. And you know he was leaning against the pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was a long, red, flexible whip, like a thing in a nightmare it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth as a flyfisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip mustn't see him. I turned about, and there was Gip, quite preoccupied with the shopman, and thinking no evil. They were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and and the shopman was holding a sort of big red drum, a sort of big drum in his hand. I didn't seek, Dada, cried Gip. You're he. And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw that was up directly. Take that off, I cried this instant. You'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman, with his unequal ears, did so without a word, and held the big, the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little tool was vacant. In that instant, my boy had utterly disappeared. You know perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand of the out of the unseen you know perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand out of the unseen and grips your heart about you know it takes your common self away and leaves you tense and deliberate neither slow nor hasty neither angry nor afraid so it was me i came up to this grinning shopman and kicked his stool aside stop this folly i said where is my boy you see, he said, still displaying the drum's interior, there is no deception. I put out my hand to grip him, and he eluded, my he eluded me by a dexterous movement. I snatched again, and he turned from me and pushed open a door to escape. Stop, I said, and he laughed, proceeding. I leapt after him into utter darkness. Thud. Lord bless my heart. Lord bless my art. I didn't see you coming, sir. I was in Regent Street, and I had collided with a decent-looking working man. And a yard away, perhaps, and looking a little perplexed himself, was Gip. There was some sort of apology, and then Gip had turned and come to me with a bright little smile, as though for a moment he had missed me, and he was carrying four parcels in his arms. He secured immediate possession of my finger. For the second I was rather at a loss. I stared round to behold the door of the magic shop, and, be and behold, it was not there. There was no door, no shop, nothing. Only the common pilaster between the shop, where they sell pictures, and the window with the chicks. I did the only thing possible in that mental tumult. I walked straight to the curbstone, and held up my umbrella for a cab. Ansem, said Gip in a note of culminating exultation. I helped him in, recalled my address with an effort, and got in also. Something unusual proclaimed itself in my tailcoat pocket, 
and I felt and discovered a glass ball. With a petulant expression, I flung it into the street. Gip said nothing. For a space, neither of us spoke. Dada said Gip at last. That was a proper shock. I came round with that, to the problem of just how the whole thing had seemed to him. He looked completely undamaged so far. Good. He was neither scared nor unhinged. He was simply tremendously satisfied with this afternoon's entertainment. And there in his arms were the four parcels. Confounded. What would be in them? Um, I said, little boys can't go to shops like that every day. He received this with his usual stoicism. And for a moment I was sorry. I was his father and not his mother. So couldn't suddenly there quorum publico. And our handsome kiss him, after all. I thought this thing wasn't so very bad. But it was only when we opened the parcels that I began to be reassured. Three of them contained boxes of soldiers, quite ordinary lead soldiers, but of so good a quality as to make Gip altogether forget that, the, that originally these parcels had been magic tricks, or of the only genuine sort. And the fourth contained a kitten, a little living white kitten in excellent health and appetite and temper. I saw this unpacking with a sort of provisional relief. I hung about in the nursery for quite an unconscionable time. That happened six months ago. Now I am beginning to believe it is all right. The kitten had only the magic natural to all kittens, and the soldiers seem as steady as company as any colonel could desire. And Gip? The intelligent parent will understand that I have to go cautiously with Gip. But when I went so far as this one day, I said, How would you like our, your soldiers to come alive, Gip, and march about by themselves? Mine do, said Gip. I just have to say a word I know before I open the lid and then they march about alone. Oh, quiet, Dada, I shouldn't like them if they didn't do that. I displayed no unbecoming surprise, and since then I have taken occasion to drop in upon him once or twice, unannounced, when the soldiers were about, but so far I had never discovered them performing anything like a magical manner. It's so difficult to tell. There was also a question of finances. I have an incurable habit of paying bills. I have been up and down Regent Street several times looking for that shop, I am inclined to think that in that matter, honor is satisfied, and that since Gip's name and address are known to them, I may very well leave it to these people, whoever they may be, to, to send in their bill in their own time. The History of the Necronomicon by H.P. Lovecraft Original title Al-Azif Al-Azif, being the word used by Arabs to designate the nocturnal sound made by insects supposed to be the howling of demons, composed by Abdul al-Hazred, a mad poet of Sana'a in Yemen, who was said to have flourished during the period of the Omeyyad Caliphs circa 700 AD. He visited the ruins of Babylon and the subterranean secrets of Memphis and spent 10 years alone in the great southern desert of Arabia. The Roba el Khalia, or empty space of the ancients, and the Donna, or crimson desert of the modern Arabs, which is held to be inhabited by protective evil spirits and monsters of death. Of this desert, many strange and unbelievable marvels are told by those who to have penetrated it. In his last years, Alhazred dwelt in Damascus, where the Necronomicon was written, and of his final death or disappearance, 738 AD, many terrible and conflicting things are told. He is said by Ibn Khalqan, 12th century biographer, to have been seized by an evil monster in broad daylight, 
and devoured horribly before a large number of fright-frozen witnesses. Of this madness many things are told. He claimed to have seen fabulous Erim, or City of Pillars, and to have found beneath the ruins of a certain nameless desert town the shocking annals and the secrets of a race older than mankind. He was only an indifferent Muslim, worshipping unknown deities, who he called yog Shagoth and Cthulhu. In A.D. 950, the Azif, which had gained a considerable though surreptitious circulation amongst the philosophers of the age, was secretly translated into Greek by Theodorus Philetaeus or Constantinople under the title Necronomicon. For a century it impelled certain experimenters to terrible attempts when it was suppressed and burnt by the patriarch Michael. After this it is only heard of furtively, but 1228, Olaus Bormius made a Latin translation later in the Middle Ages, and the Latin text was printed twice, once in the 15th century in black letter, evidently in German, and once in the 17th, probably Spanish, both editions being without identifying marks and located as the time and place by internal typographical evidence. Only the work, both Latin and Greek, was banned by Pope Gregory VI in 1232, shortly after its Latin translation, which called its attention to it. The Arabic original was lost as early as Wormius' time, as indicated by his prefatory note, and no sight of the Greek copy was printed in Italy between 1500 and 1550. It has been reported since the burning of a certain Salem man's library in 1692. An English translation, made by Dr. D, was never printed, and exists only in fragments, recovered from the original manuscript of the Latin text now existing. One, 15th century, is known to be in the British Museum, under lock and key, while another, 17th century, is in the Bibliothèque Nationale at Paris. A 17th century edition is in the Widener Library at Harvard, and in the Library of Miskatonic University at Arkham, also in the Library of the University Buenos Aires. Numerous other copies probably exist in secret, and a 15th century one is persistently rumored to form part of the collection of a certain American millionaire. A still vaguer rumor credits the preservation of a 16th century Greek text in the Salem family of Pickman. But if it was so preserved, it vanished with the artist R.U. Pickman, who disappeared early in 1926. The book is rigidly suppressed by the authorities of most countries and by all branches of organized ecclesiasticism. Reading leads to terrible consequences. It was from rumors of this book of which rel relatively few of the general public know, that R.W. Changers is said to have drived the idea of his early novel, The King in Yellow. A Haunted House by Virginia Woolf Whatever hour you woke, there was a door shutting from room to room. They went hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure, a ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, Oh, but here, Tool, it's upstairs, she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered, Quietly, they said, we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us. Oh no, they're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say, and so read on a page or two. Now they've found it. One would be certain, stopping the pencil on the margin, and then tired of reading, one might rise and see for oneself, the house all empty, the doors standing open, only the wood pigeons bubbling with content, and the hum of the threshing machine sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs then. The apples were in the loft, and so down again, the garden still as ever. Only the book had slipped into the grass, but they had found it in the drawing room. 
Not that one could ever see them. The window panes reflected apples, reflected roses. All the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing room, the apple only turned its yellow side. Yet the moment after, if the door was open, spread about the floor, hung upon the wall, pendant from the ceiling, what? My hands were empty. The shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet. From the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat softly. The treasure buried the room. The pulse stopped short. Oh, was that the buried treasure? A moment later, the light had faded. Out in the garden, then. But the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun. So fine, so rare. Coolly sunk beneath the surface. The beam I sought always, burned behind the glass. Death was the glass, death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago, leaving the house, sealing all the windows. The rooms were darkened. He left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the down. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat gladly, the treasure yearned. The wind roars up the avenue, trees stoop and bend this way, and that moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain but the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window the candle burns stiff and still wandering through the house opening the window whispering not to wake us the ghostly couple seek their joy here we slept she says and he adds kisses without number waking in the morning silver between the tree upstairs in the garden and summer came in winter in winter snow time the doors go shutting far in the distance gently knocking like the pulse of a heart nearer they come cease at the doorway the wind falls the rain slides silver down the glass our eyes darken we hear no steps behind us we see no lady spread her ghostly cloak his hands shield the lantern look he breathes sound asleep love upon their lips stooping holding their silver lamp above us long they look and deeply long they pause the wind drives straightly the flame stoops slightly wild beams of moonlight cross both floor and wall and meeting stain the faces bent the faces pondering the faces that search the sleepers and seek their hidden joy safe 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 the heart of the house beats proudly long years he sighs again you found me here she murmurs sleeping in the garden reading laughing rolling apples in the loft here we left our treasure stooping her light lifts the lids upon my eyes safe 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 the pulse of the house beats wildly waking i cry oh is this your buried treasure the light in the heart